Last week, I began a series on the struggle with secularism. We do not struggle against paganism as the early church did. The early believers were up against the Roman, the Greco-Roman pagan world. And that included the idea that the, uh, the emperors were also divine and needed to be sacrificed to. And this, this notion of paganism became a major part of what both Judaism and Christianity had to struggle with in the first several centuries. As time went on, paganism faded. It lost its intellectual base which was related to philosophy uh, and the poems, and that kind of got gutted as philosophy separated from that context. And the faith then uh, of uh, Judaism in the Roman Empire and Christianity began to have a much greater status, ultimately with Christianity becoming the primary faith of the Greco-Roman world. Uh, Now that's got complications of its own, but it's important to understand that Our battle and our struggle today is not against paganism. It's against secularism. There are uh, several modern, several worldviews that compete for the minds of Americans. And those are the modern ones. There are three of those. I'm going to talk about those in more detail. And there are two postmodern worldviews that have emerged since the 1960s. The way these divide, really, between the modern and the postmodern, both are a division based on the secular and the religious. The primary difference between moderns and postmoderns is not secular and religious. Both moderns and postmoderns have secular versions and religious versions. The primary difference between a modern and a postmodern is the belief in objective truth. Uh, Those who are uh, moderns, and that would probably include most of you, uh, believe that truth and reality are found in an objective form. And that can be established with some level of significant certainty. As a result, then, moderns will attempt to know truth and reality through several epistemological methods. These are discovery, revelation, and contemplation. In other words, direct experience, being informed of it by someone else, revelation, or contemplation, thinking about it. Those epistemologies that come out of philosophy are really the foundational principles of modern uh, reality, and moderns believe that reality actually exists objectively and that truth actually exists objectively. Postmoderns, however, tend towards a more subjective and relative view of truth and reality. Both of these, for them, are more or less phenomenological. That is, perception is reality, not reality. And the perception matters more than any objective reality that might be behind it. So postmoderns tend to trust their feelings and their personal individual experience more than objective science, formal logic, or in the case of the scriptures, special revelation. Your children are growing up in a fully postmodern world And if they go to a public education system, they are permeated 
with postmodern ideas. The idea that subjective perception is reality. Okay? Sometimes people get frustrated, if you're a modern, when you hear postmodern talk because if somebody says, this is the way I see it, and that's it, and you've got all these facts to prove to them that that's not the case, and they don't care, that's a postmodern. Okay? A modern will pick and choose the facts that they think fit their argument, but they're not going to necessarily violate the facts. They may fudge them a little bit, but they think that that objective reality is behind it. So, my generation and some of our children maintain that modern notion, and the postmodern really is shot through the millennials at the present time. The second divide between the modern and the postmodern world is the secular and the religious, and that's what I want to talk about today. I'm not going to talk about objective truth and reality, because in this group I know that you believe that there is objective truth and there's objective reality, and so I'm not going to have that conversation. But in the modern worldviews, there is a major divide, similar to what divides the postmoderns, and that is the divide between the secular and the religious. So let me remind you, I've talked about this before, what the modern secular worldview uh, means. The modern secular worldview considers reality and truth to be closely related. In other words, what is real is truth. What is truth is real. Therefore, whatever actually exists in the physical world or in the cognitive behavioral reality of what we call the behavioral sciences becomes truth. Facts, therefore, are truth, and those facts that are most certain are trusted more than speculation and reflection. The modern secular worldview is agnostic or atheistic in that the reality and truth is not dependent on God existing or God acting in reality. Reality operates in a mechanistic and natural system and that system can be discovered, understood, and ultimately controlled. So this pushes the modern secularists to trust science, social science, and statistics to, ex to express and confirm the truth and facts of reality. In this system, religion is at best a personal interest, which should be kept separate from the public discourse of the culture or an old superstition that probably needs to be removed. You following me? A person who is a secularist believes that reality exists, it exists independent of any so-called God, and it operates in a mechanistic model that can be examined, discovered, manipulated, and that's why we have airplanes that fly and, and, and satellites and all that. And for them... That is all of reality and therefore all of truth. The second group are the modern liberal religious worldview. You will find the modern liberal religious worldview among Jews, among Christians, and among Muslims. The three, and not as much among Muslims, but you will find them. 
the three monotheistic religions are split into two worldviews, one of them liberal, one of them conservative. So the liberal one uh, differs from the modern secular in only one fundamental tenet. God does exist, and he has some purpose and some level of involvement in the creation. But God and religion are not given a place above facts and the truth of reality as understood by science and social science. In other words, the liberal religious view is that which can be understood by science and social science using empiricism and logic. Uh, and only what can't be understood by those things may the scriptures speak to. In other words, once we figure out how to do electricity, God exits electricity. Once we understand how to do air conditioning, God exits air conditioning. Once we know how to make cars so we can drive, God exits those. And the secular world grows in this mechanistic, no-God zone. And then God still exists in the liberal view, but he exists outside of that. And therefore, he can address maybe morality, maybe. And he can address uh, salvation. And so among liberal Christians and Jews, there may be some plan of God, some heaven, some hell. There may be those things. We can't know those scientifically. We can't know those logically. So therefore, God can speak to them. Religion can speak to them. But it cannot speak to the rest of this because we now know what it is. And we can understand it and control it. The third modern worldview is the conservative religious one. The modern conservative religious worldview contrasts with the other two in that it considers that truth is revealed through the scriptures and understood through religious tradition and as such has a superior claim to truth than science and especially social science. So this view trusts the hard sciences unless it conflicts with the scripture. So if science finds a genetic basis for homosexuality, the liberal view would say, see, that's reality, therefore that's truth. The conservative view would say, no, it may be real, but it's not truth. Truth tells us what to do with it. You see that difference? So, this is why people who come from the more liberal tradition tend to go with whatever the secular world says, and people from the more conservative tradition kind of push back against uh, science and social science when it appears to conflict with the scriptures. You with me? Now, I would imagine that most of you, unless you were paying attention last week, say, well, then I'm a conservative worldview modern. Okay? So, let me say uh, that our struggle is, let me say I lost my picture. That's it. Okay. Our struggle is with secularism, and therefore the biblical worldview does not address secularism. Okay. 
it's not consistent with the biblical worldview to believe in a secular space, a no-God zone. So we'll talk about that. But first let me talk about that struggle. The modern world unfolded and the struggle between secular, that is atheistic and naturalistic concepts, and religious, theistic perspectives became a battle for control. The struggle was a cultural and social one and settled primarily on the relationship between government and church authority. And that became the big issue in Europe over getting rid of the divine right of kings and having a more secular form of governmental structure and a religious structure that could be separated because those were problematic. And of course, the American experiment was the ultimate separation of governmental structure, not necessarily from God, but from ecclesiastical structure, so that a free church and a free state was the ideal in the American notion. That framework that we would have a somewhat secular government and we would have a a freedom of religion and that we would keep that from uh, turning into a major conflict and control issue. But that's not all that happened. In the process of this, the arts began to move from primarily a sacred notion to a secular notion. So if you know the history of Europe and music and art, you know that for a time all art was religious, whether it be music, whether it be theatrical, whatever it was, it tended to be religious. And then there began to be this secular extension separating religious art and music from sacred art and music. And the dynamic development was a notion of secular and sacred, secular and religious. This also happened in terms of media, where religious entities had their own media and secular people had their own media. And again, as this moves, as the secular begins to grow, the the sacred begins to retreat. When I was a young lad and TV was relatively new. There would be half-hour programs where musicians would sing. Tennessee Ernie Ford, those kind of people, all right? At one point in the service, I mean, in the TV show, all the lights would be turned down, and there might be a picture of a Bible or maybe a picture of a cross, and the person would sing a religious song and then go back to their secular uh, framework. So there was, uh, the sacred and secular were allowed to sit side by side. Even Elvis Presley released religious albums. Everybody who sang, sang their secular music, but they released religious albums. Christmas albums, hymn albums, they all did that. Okay, So these were seen as separate, but they weren't seen as conflict. They were just seen as distinct. Schools. Most of our schools and hospitals developed out of religious communities and then began to be taken over by the government. Once they moved to the government, they moved to the secular world, and then you remove prayer and you remove other things. That's simply what happened. Same with health. Uh, The medical community began to emerge from the religious 
praying and healing community. And while they still maintained a distinction, almost every hospital had a chapel and chaplains, there was a distinction between the spiritual part and the physical needs of health. This also happened in mental health in more recent times as we moved away from a concept of people being evil to a a concept of people being not mentally healthy. Why does somebody murder someone? Cain, the argument of Cain, was Cain mentally ill? No, Cain was evil. Today, somebody murders people, they're mentally ill. Now, not saying that there is no mental illness. What I'm saying is, there's a tendency to dichotomize these, throwing everything in one bucket or everything in the other bucket, and not see that there's some level of continuum between them. Parenting. Up until Spock, and I don't mean this one, I mean Dr. Spock, parents tended to get their information from clergy as to how to raise children. But in the in this 50s, 60s, 70s, and 80s, child parenting or parenting experts began to develop in the behavioral sciences and medicine that competed with it. That became secular. If you weren't religious, you went to them. And if you were religious, you considered what they said. And we had that move. And of course, marriage went from religious to cultural with Martin Luther, who said that marriage is not a sacrament. And so we began to have a non-religious form of marriage that had religious overtones. And that struggle has finally ripped wide open in the last couple of years with the gender-neutral marriage versus religious marriage. With, again, people wanting to make all marriage religious or all marriage secular. This is what we have created, this dichotomy between the secular and the religious. So... These battles were operational at several levels. They had differing speeds and dynamics, which make a full explanation almost impossible. But in recent times, this whole thing has been exacerbated by two things. The postmodern world and radical individualism, where everybody is a judge in their own eyes of what's right and what's wrong, and no one can tell anybody uh, that they're wrong, right? So in that context, secularism has now moved the church very much into a corner. And there are people who are wanting to push back politically and people who want to push back uh, in other ways. And then there are some people who simply want to escape and create a monastery somewhere out of the world and, you know, uh, that kind of thing. So the struggle now for Judeo-Christians and Messianic Jews is to understand that the modern conservative religious worldview is not the biblical worldview. Now, that's less controversial to you as a congregation, but if you bring that and say that to your evangelical or Baptist or even Catholic friends, they are going to react poorly to that because They don't know the biblical worldview. They only know the conservative worldview. It seems to match the Bible. But the liberals do the same thing. I talked about this in several classes that many of you took. Uh, There are people who say, the authoritarian 
Home is the biblical home. Because the man is the head of the home, right? And they read Lord or authority. The word head doesn't mean that. On a ship, the head's a toilet, right? You've got to know what the context is. The head means the one responsible. doesn't mean the one in charge. God's the authority in the home. But you've got people on the liberal side who say, hey, of course we can have gender-neutral marriages because in Christ there is no male or female. That distinction no longer matters, right? So everybody has a Bible verse and everybody fights for their Bible verse, neither one of them knowing that the context that the Bible was written in, its biblical worldview, is not addressing those questions. It's certainly not addressing the distinction between secular and religious. So, I said all of that to get to this point. The distinction between the secular and religious aspects of life are modern concepts. And they are unknown to the context and the text of the scriptures. There are related concepts in the Bible, but the distinctions are very different. So I'm going to, over the next several weeks, give you those. I'm going to begin with the issue of holy versus regular or common. And I want to do that by reminding you of the very first text of the scriptures, Genesis 1, 1 to Genesis 2, 3. Obviously, we can't go through all of that. But you tend to know those texts well enough that God created the heavens and the earth. Now, what did God do? God first separated light from darkness. And he called them good. Right? Didn't say, light will be good, darkness will be evil. Now that theme is talked about later in understanding being able to see and being blind, those kinds of things. But the light and the darkness are not good and evil. We don't go, the sun's going down, get in the house, there's evil out there, right? The evil is the people who use darkness. But the darkness is not evil. Second day, God separated the atmosphere and the earth. One of them good, one of them bad? No, just different. Third day, he separated the water from the land and he caused the vegetation to grow each after their own kind. Okay? So tomato plants don't produce green beans. Right? The idea was that God made these distinctions. Were any of them bad? No, they're all good. We're going to see in all of this, God says, it's all good, it's all good, it's all good. Okay? But God is involved in the, in the light and God is involved in the darkness. God is involved in the atmosphere and God is involved in the earth. God is involved in the water and the land. So, what's the next day? The fourth day, the sun, the moon, and the stars. He says, they're going to have distinct purposes. Did he say, the sun is good, the moon is bad? He didn't do that. Next day, the fifth day, sea creatures after their kind, and birds after their kind. Birds good, fish bad. He didn't do that, okay? He created distinctive variations. They are distinct from each other, but they all have a function and purpose. They're all good in his creation. Sixth day, he created animals after their kind. He made men and women, male and female, in his image. Men are good, women are bad, right? No, it's the opposite, right? It's none of that, right? 
He didn't do that. He created us distinctly so that the whole system would be good. And the scripture says that God said it was very good. Okay. Now the seventh day is the one that matches what we're talking about here. The seventh day God blessed and he separated the Shabbat, the Sabbath. And he made it holy, kadosh. So the Sabbath is a unique day, separate from the other days, not making the other days bad, and not making them secular. God is not gone. God only shows up on Shabbat. Okay? God's never there except for Shabbat, right? Friday night, God shows up at the earth. Hey, how's it going? Been gone a week. Uh, You're doing good. Oh, I see you're all resting. All right, I'll hang out with you for a day, and I'm out of here. The other days are good days, but they're not holy. The distinction is not holy and bad, holy and evil, holy and no God. The distinction is the more regular days and then that which is uniquely set apart for a holy purpose. So the biblical definition of holy versus common is a biblical category, not secular versus religious. We have a tendency to say, well, I have my religious life and I have my regular life. That's not a biblical concept. So, the idea of distinction is related to place and function. There is a distinction of good, tov, and evil, ra, but that is not the separation of the holy and the regular or the holy and the common. God is involved in all the distinctions And he must be acknowledged as holy in relationship to all the other things. The common things may be good, but they are not holy. Tuesday is good, but it's not holy. Wednesday is good, but it's not holy. Okay, We're going to talk about this more later when we talk about clean and unclean concepts in the scripture. By the way, marriage is holy. The scripture says, if an unbeliever is married to a believer... That marriage is made, the unbeliever is sanctified, made holy for the sake of the children. So the children would not be unclean. Now they're holy. These are biblical categories that we're supposed to think in, not in religious and secular categories. So, how does this work? Well, theologians have tried to address this. But you know what theologians do. They do what philosophers do. They come up with fancy words that nobody knows except them. And then they argue about them, right? So the issue is that they talk about God as being transcendent and God as being imminent. Now when they say that God is transcendent, what they mean is that God is not part of the creation. God is outside the creation. After all, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, which means God existed when the heavens and the earth didn't exist. So he can't be part of the creation He is apart from the creation. But God is not only transcendent, he's imminent. That means that God is intimately present in some manner in the creation. In its most spectacular form in the incarnation. That's why when we celebrate at Advent and Christmas, God becoming flesh, that's an amazing thing. That which was transcendent became absolutely imminent. So that he could be touched and and spoken with and all of that kind of thing. So, where does this come out? Well, in Isaiah chapter 55, 
uh, verses 8 through 11. God talks about his distinction from the creation, and particularly from us, even though we are created in his image. So he says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and the bread of the eater, so my word uh, which goes from my mouth, it will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Now, it's really important that you catch this. God says, I am above you. I am beyond you. You can't understand me. Okay? The mind of God is like an ant trying to understand our mind. Okay? On the other hand, God says, I just want you to know something. When it rains, you notice the vegetation grows and, and things happen. My word, when it goes forth, remember, how did the world come into existence? And God said, let there be, right? So God's word is what animates and maintains all that's going on. And so that is important to understand that while God is wholly other, he is directly and completely involved in all aspects of his creation. And we need to see that a little clearer. So Acts chapter 17. In Acts chapter 17, verse 24, the Apostle Paul is speaking at Mars Hill, not the church, uh, Mars Hill over in, in uh, near Athens. Uh, and uh, that little hill is a place where people used to gather and talk. It was like the talk show radio of the time. They didn't have the radios, so they'd go there and people would talk about everything. And, and Paul is talking there, and he is talking about this altar that he saw to an unknown God. They wanted to make sure they didn't leave anybody out. That's paganism. Uh, and he says in verse 24, uh, The God who made the world and all that's in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times, their boundaries of their habitation. God's involved in all the development of nations and the process that's going on. He is not absent from this process. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said. For we also are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. So here's what happened. Paganism versus secularism. If you don't understand anything else I said, get this. In the past, people would take stuff and make it an altar. 
They took the creation and assumed that the creation was a god or the gods. And, and Paul is saying, God is outside of that creation. He's not a piece of wood. He's not a piece of metal. He's not any of this stuff. Okay? At the same time, He's not far from us. He's directly involved in our life. In Him we live and move and have our being. You see, both transcendence and imminence. The secular denies the imminence of God by saying, well, God's not in that chair. Paganism would say, God is in the chair. Okay? Secular says, God is not in the chair. And the biblical theology says, God is working even in that chair. He's not in the chair, but he's near the chair. And his plan and purpose involves even the chair. Now, that brings us to a passage you all know well. Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Romans eight twenty-eight. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are the called according to His purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, Paul is making it clear that God makes note of everything that goes on in his creation. Jesus said, the hair of your head are numbered. A bird doesn't fall from the, from the sky without God knowing. God is intimately aware of every detail. And in that, God has a plan. Not a plan in those details. Don't go there. Don't go hyper-Calvinistic here. Okay? God has a plan. Now, when I have a plan at my house, and I'm going to do something, I go out in my garage, and there's a whole lot of stuff out there. A lot of it is in my way. But I find what I need, and I take it and I do what I'm doing. Right? And at other times, I need other things that are in the garage. And I use them. Right? That's what God is doing with his creation. He is working out his plan, which is to conform us into the image of Christ as a community. And to bring about all that he's promised. And where he needs to use this, he'll use it. And if he doesn't need to use it, he won't use it. But he's aware and involved in the whole process. And so, I used this this morning, and the Gospels this morning. Some of you are using some of the chairs. Some of the chairs are not being used. But they're all, we're aware of them, and we have those options. That's what Paul's talking about. God is saying, I'm going to do good. My creation is good. I'm going to do good, and I'm going to make use of everything. This is why, in the case of Sin, and many of you know this, and I know this very well. Sometimes our sin gets used by God for good. Does it justify our sin? No. But then we can say, as Joseph said of his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. In other words, God says, I can, I can make use of that. 
Now, shall we sin that grace may abound? God forbid. But the idea is there is nothing that's out of God's touch. There is nothing that's out of his reach that he can't use for his good. Doesn't mean he's going to use it all. But if he needs it, he'll use it. And none of it will get in his way. That's incredible stuff. But if you're a secularist, then stuff just happens and God's not there. That's not a biblical notion. So the biblical worldview, by the way, Hebrews 1.3 says that Christ upholds all things by the authority of his, of his might, his power. The idea is that he is actually involved. This is not some mechanistic thing that God wound up and pushed out there and said, I'll, I'll come in once in a while and do a miracle and then I'm out. God is intimately involved in everything all the time. The problem is we don't know it. Because we don't get that. He's given us enough to know that which is revealed is for us and our children. The hidden things belong to God. We'll talk about that more later. So, let me say this. The biblical worldview has no place for the secular in the sense of a no-God zone of time, space, or activity. That will transform your mind if you catch it. For us... There is that which is holy and that which is common, but all things are under his authority and under his control. Our struggle then is how to live in a world and a culture that separates things into secular and religious when we and our God doesn't do that. Now, it's easier in our homes, but it's not easy. It's easier in our congregations, but it's not easy. But it's very difficult in our jobs and in public so-called secular places. What agreement hath God and Starbucks, right? But our faith and our God permeates all creation and therefore he is always with us. In him we live and move and have our being and that ought to be manifest in how, how we live and how we act. So, Next week, I'm going to give some examples of this, but I want you to be looking for them because I'm hoping that you'll be able to do the same thing. I've only talked about one category. I've talked about holy and regular. Okay? I want you to begin to identify what in your life is holy and what in your life is regular. I don't want you to think about clean and unclean. I don't even want you to think about sinful and not sinful. Those are different categories. Right now, I just want you to say, what in our lives is holy and secular? And there are degrees of this, okay? For example, this sanctuary, we call it a holy place, we use for one purpose and one purpose only. And that is to do worship. When we have an elders meeting we meet over in the library. We're going to have our business meeting over in the chapel, right? This, this place has a greater level of exclusive holiness than some of the other areas, just like the temple had that. So there are degrees and levels of holiness, but I just want you to find out what areas in your life are there. I believe our marriages are holy. Our marriages are not like the marriages of the world. 
They have a different purpose and a different process, and we need to see that as distinct. Our job is not to tell everybody to make their marriage holy. Our job is to make ours holy. Okay? So, I want you to look through this week at what is holy in your life. I've already given you two. I gave you marriage and I gave you your children. If you're a believer, your children are kadosh, according to Corinthians. What does that mean? What am I doing with those holy children that makes them different than other children? Secondly, I want you to look for what might profane holiness. I believe that secularism profanes holiness. I told you this last week. I'm going to repeat it again because repetition is needed. I have started when I take medicine to do a bracha. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who sustains our health through medicine and through knowledgeable doctors. Because God is involved in that process. Now sometimes we see it clearly, like Cheryl mentioned last week, where really you go, well that was a God thing, right? But there are other times when we ignore it, but the danger is to think secular. Well it just runs on automatic. Believe me, it's not running on automatic. We ask God to bless food to our bodies. Why would we not ask God to bless the medicine to our bodies? Because we become secular. And as the secular weeds move into our world, the religious aspect goes out. We begin to move God out of that area and only in these areas. Holy is set apart only to God. But common still has God in it. And we have to think about that. So I want you to find ways to bring God back into the secular parts of your life where the non-holy is maintained with the knowledge of God. So let me say that again and then I'll, I'll shut up. I want you to identify what's holy in your life. I want you to look for the unholy, what might be threatening that holiness. And then I want you to find ways to bring God back into the secular aspects of your life. In other words, let's push that secular back where it belongs with those who do not acknowledge our God. Now, this is going to be difficult. I'm not sure how to bring God into plumbing. Okay? I'm sure there's a way. But the idea is that I want to push back against this creeping secularism because your children are going to grow up in a predominantly subjective, secular, postmodern, highly individualized world. And if God, if they don't live and move and have their being in God, and they're knowledgeable of that, then God is going to be phenomenologically absent from them. And that's not the testimony that we want. So let's pray.